Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's Word, fellowship, and prayer. Good to see everybody this morning. We are starting a new series officially today, so that's exciting. Uh, after two and a half years in Acts, I really don't, I don't know if I know how to preach anything else, so we might be in big trouble. I don't know if this is an omen or not, but I was holding all my stuff, and I, and I work off my iPad. I accidentally bumped it and, and uh, was editing it without knowing. And when I looked down at my notes just now, at the top of the notes, I typed a big giant L at the top. And if, that, if that's an omen that, that I'm going to lose today, I, you know, been, I would have felt better if it was a giant W, but it was an L. So pray for me. Um, L for love. L for love. Uh, so we are going to be jumping all over the Bible today. We're going to be doing a series, a short series through the month of December on the principles of ministry that we have here at Midtown Baptist Temple, the nine principles of ministry. And uh, these, are the, these are the principles that prompt us in really the way that we conduct ourselves in ministry, the way that we, the way that we act, the way that we think, the way that we believe, the way that we function. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm excited because we're going to have a bunch of different guys teaching through the series, uh, segments. Uh, so I'm not going to carry the whole load of, of teaching this stuff. I've got a bunch of guys that are going to join me. And starting with Miles, actually, today is going to actually be teaching. So that's, that's fun. So the question is, why this series and, and why now? Uh, over the last couple of years, the ministry has really grown uh, quite a bit. Uh, through the, the pandemic and, and through all the different things going on, despite all the difficulties that we faced, the ministry has grown uh, so much so that I've begun to realize that, that there are certain things that get lost along the way when, when things begin to change, right? When things transform and as things grow, a lot of times there's information that you take for granted. There's ideas and concepts and even principles that you take for granted. But as a church grows and as, as time passes, uh, we can lose track of our priorities. And every church is in danger of this, right? It's not just us. Every church is in danger of this. Uh, churches often, and, and maybe if we really to analyze it, uh, maybe most churches have a divided focus. Most churches in contemporary Christianity probably have a divided focus. Many churches are divided in their beliefs. There's churches within a stone's throw of this building, okay, that, that within the context of their own local church have not even distinguished exactly what it is that they believe as a congregation. And so there are people in their congregation that don't even are not even on the same page with their pastors or one another in terms of core doctrine and what they believe, that's very common. And so when you got people that are disagreeing on the main things that this, that this book says, you can see how that would become pro problematic, right? Other churches are divided in their traditions or culture, right? You've got, uh, we live in a world where they have things like uh, uh, traditional service versus contemporary worship service, right? So you've got one service where all the young people who are like want the contemporary music, they go to that service. But then in the next service, actually, the, it's usually the old people's service first, isn't it? Because they're the ones that wake up at like 4.30 in the morning. And so the, you got the traditional service first, and then you got contemporary worship service. And so they're divided in terms of culture, uh, you know, 
They've got uh, things like political issues in their church, racial divisions uh, in their churches, and, and, and that obviously creates lots of problems. Others are divided in their ambitions. Churches are often divided in terms of their ambition, what, what it is that they're trying to do. What are, what, are, what are we trying to achieve? What is our actual mission? What are we trying to get done? And uh, we, don't, you know, we don't have to spend a lot of time talking about it. I don't think it takes much to look around at the landscape of Christianity and see that there are churches uh, that their main objective is to get rear ends in the pew and tithes in the plate. They would never put it that way. But, uh, you know, as I've gotten older, um, I've been let behind the pastor veil, if you will. You meet new pastors all the time uh, at different events or you bump into each other. And there's like pastor, weird like pastor conversations that they wouldn't have with their congregants. But a lot of times the very first question that they ask you is how big is your church or how big is the ministry that you're involved with? And they don't want that to seem unspiritual. So they usually frame that in a very spiritual way. But what, they, what they're concerned about is whether or not, uh, you know, their, their church adds up in terms of the number of people attending. And so they become event-based, they became, become programmatic, they become program-based, and so they're doing things to draw people into the doors. Uh, they've got marketing schemes and strategies. And, and I'm not even saying that some of that stuff's bad. I'm not, I'm not trying to parse through what's good and bad. That's not my objective today. But, but what I want to point out to you is that it's very easy to get into this mindset in 2021 in Christianity. Just easy to do. It's all around us. And if we're not careful, we too, as a ministry and as a church, can get divided in terms of the things that we're focused on. The nine principles are a way for our church, Midtown Baptist Temple. Nine is not a special number. Okay, you know, it could be 10, it could be 11. Other churches might have principles. All I'm saying is for our church, we've got nine principles. And our nine principles are a way for our church family to always be reminded of who we are and who we're going to be. That's why we have them. And so you're going to be hearing from nine different teaching elders in our class over the next few weeks. And each one is going to be presenting a different facet of what makes up the principles of our ministry. Okay, that's what we're doing. So it's a little bit different. This isn't our expository preaching that we're used to. All right, this is a little bit more topical, but I believe that it's necessary and will be beneficial for us. Let's pray. Pray, pray for me, pray for the series, and then let's, let's get to it. Okay? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you, and we're grateful for your son, Jesus Christ. And we're grateful for the opportunity to sing Emmanuel. And to be able to say it uh, with the belief that we as your church have fully received you for who you are. That you've come and that you've saved us and you've set us free. And then we also sing it with the prophetic knowledge, Lord, that, that you one day will redeem the nation of Israel in whole. And that your eyes are still set on them. That they are still the apple of your eye and that you love them and adore them. And that, God, you are a God that keeps your promises I'm so grateful for that. I'm so grateful that we can take you uh, literally for the words that you've given us, that your word is true, that it's sharper than, than any two-edged sword, and that it divides our flesh and our fleshly thinking and, and the things that so often get in the way of doing proper ministry and, and following after you and having an intimate relationship with you. You are willing to def- divide those things from our spirit and make us alive and make us sanctified. And make us holy before you, even though we never deserve that. We love you, and we're grateful for this time. We pray that your words, the the words from your book, would prompt 
our ministry, uh, that it would provoke us to live holy, it would provoke us to, to focus on the right things, and that we would be able to prioritize the things that you prioritize in the New Testament in terms of the ecclesiastical expectations. And so we ask this in the name and by the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, at Midtown Baptist Temple, we desire to be a church that lives by principles and not policies. Okay, so if you're writing, Dylan, I discipled you. Where are you where's your notepad? Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay, as, as, long as, you're, as long as you're doing it. Okay, good. We're a church that desires to live by principles and not policies, and this is a super critical point that we need to understand, and I want to make it very clear uh, because it's going to help us define the, the entirety of the series. There is a distinction between these two things, and I have to say I'm, I'm not sure that I always personally understood that, okay, because that's been lingo that I've heard around here since I was young in the faith, and beginning to grow in leadership since I was in my early 20s, I've heard the pastors saying things like, we want to function based on principle and not policy. I'm not sure I always got that. It took me a long time to understood that, uh, understand that practically and how to live that out. And really it happened as I observed Pastor Sam. Okay, so a lot of times we'd be sitting in these meetings, right? And Pastor Sam would say something. And I would think to myself, well, I don't know what he's asking right now. I need clarity. I need something black and white. I need a directive. I need someone to tell me exactly what to do because I'm a young person in my faith and I want to follow the Lord. I want to be a leader. I've been called to leadership and so here I am. I need something that's going to be concrete, black and white, clear as day. I prefer that. And I think as human beings, we all like policies and rules. Policies feel concrete. They feel distinct, they, they feel direct, they feel sure. And rules oftentimes give us confidence that we're doing what's right. Okay, so I grew up playing basketball, and there are rules to the game of basketball. It takes time to learn them. My son's 10, he's just now learning all the rules of basketball, what constitutes as a travel, what constitutes as double dribble. But it's really good and refreshing to know what is inbounds and out of bounds when you're playing basketball. It gives you confidence. It gives you confidence that you're doing the game the right way. And I think a lot of us are prone to desiring rules by which to function. But see, there's, there's, there's problems with policies. See, policies are also restrictive. And they don't promote freedom. And they don't promote liberty to make personal decisions. Which is what Sam always, this is what I've come to learn. That's what always what Sam wanted for me as a leader is he wasn't going to tell me what to do. He wasn't going to give me rules. He wasn't going to, me a, going to give me a policy by which to do ministry. He wanted to set me free to make decisions as the Holy Spirit led me as an individual saved by grace, set free to minister. And I, I really appreciate that. But policies have a tendency to be restrictive. And in a faith context, policies often keep people from being who God made them to be and it prohibits natural spiritual growth. Okay? In fact, policymaking often puts churches temptingly close to what we call legalism. You guys familiar with this term, legalism? Legalism, when we say that, we mean an excessive adherence to a rule or a law. And so once you, once you have a policy, 
Once you have a rule, once you have a tradition by which you're supposed to abide, well, that might give you some confidence in terms of what is out of bounds and what's in bounds, right? But at the exact same time, when everybody's functioning based on policy, the tendency is to be very judgmental. If someone somehow finds themselves out of bounds or not adhering to the strict rules or the conduct by which we set in place or into motion, then suddenly that's what, that's what wickedness looks like. See, legalism is a common cultural element of religion. In fact, it's the most common. I would say the most common cultural element of religion. And, and by religion, I don't, you know, I want to use it in the most negative way. Because religion itself, you know, isn't biblically bad, right? Because we do adhere to things as well. But the idea of religion, okay, as a, as a cultural element is religion is intended to bind us and keep us in bondage to men's rules and laws. Think about the Pharisees for a minute. We spent a lot of time in, in, in Acts talking about the Pharisees, right? And the Pharisees were often, by Christ and also by the disciples, uh, were seen as wicked men, right? So obsessed with tradition that it kept them from actually seeing the Messiah for who he was, Their traditions actually prohibited them from actually seeing. It blinded them to who Jesus Christ was. Churches or institutions, often well-intended, will set up guidelines for behavior or conduct in ministry, and anything outside of that becomes sin. So then the institution, not God, becomes the judge and jury over our lives and ministry. So we, you know, the extreme examples of this is in a lot of churches in our world today. There's prohibitions on the way that one dresses. We'd all be in big trouble if we went to one of those churches. Look at you guys. We look like a bunch of slobs. You know that, right? right? There's a, about 50% of all the Baptist churches in the United States. You, if we walked in looking like this, there's a good chance they'd stone us. You realize that, right? So there's you know, prohibitions on dress or music, right? Uh, uh, and, eh, all kinds of things. What you can drink, what you can eat, what movies you can go to. Rules about all kinds of stuff. And this is how they determine what is and isn't spiritual, what in is and isn't right, right? And it, and it, and it restricts people. It, it pushes them into a box. And this approach to ministry doesn't produce trust, does it? It doesn't produce ministry zeal. Man's religion and legalism can only produce manipulation and over time, it poisons people's faith, gets them so obsessed with the rules that they no longer see faith with clarity. Okay, they no longer have things to hope for. They have rules to follow. And that's, that's, that's a shame. Now, this doesn't mean that every policy is bad, right? Not every policy is bad. We have some policies here that help us procedurally as a church. An example of that I thought of this week was, uh, and mainly because because. I'm, I'm really making the web design team at our church probably, they're, they're very busy right now. But there's, there's rules and there's a procedure by which someone submits to our church that they need to see something changed on the website. So an example of that is that the, the International Student Ministry uh, has a bunch of changes that they're going to make to the website in the coming months. And in order to do that, in order to think, keep things clear so that the web design team doesn't get overwhelmed, there's a little form that they fill out and they submit that form and there's a procedure and a policy by which the web design makes changes to the website. Right? That seems 
That seems good, right? Things done in order. Okay, so not every policy is bad. Some of our policies are built around principles. So we have a policy that, that if someone wants to be discipled in our church, if they want to enter into a mentorship relationship with someone else, we want them principally to count the cost of what that means for their life. And so what we ask them to do is to take a class called Cost of Discipleship. That's our policy. They go through the class of, uh, of Cost of Discipleship, and on the other side of that, they determine whether or not they want to be discipled. So not every policy is bad. Okay, That kind of policy isn't the problem. See, the problem is when rules and policies define the, the way that people in a church do ministry. That's the problem, and that leads us to our first Point. Point number one, policy-driven churches are prone to be stifled and stagnant. Okay? They're prone to be stifled and stagnant. That slide was already up for a long time, wasn't it? <laughs> See, when that happens, it loses all of its, like, flair, right? It's okay. But you guys already get, wrote it down, right? You're done with that, so we can move on. So by stifled, what do I mean? Okay, stifled... Uh, means that, that, that Christians are in danger of getting in each other's way when they're obsessed with all of the rules. It presents us with entanglements, right, that slow us down, that prohibit us. And over time, all of the people trying to do ministry and trying to follow all of the policies and rules will eventually find themselves tangled up and unable to move forward. That's what I mean by stifled. And it'll also stagnate us, which means that policies are demotivating, and they don't encourage liberty in ministry. No, we need to function in the grace and power of the Spirit, not in the constraints or rules of the law. What's, what a, what Galatians deals with this, really, as a whole, right? All right? That's what Galatians is about. So in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, O foolish Galatians, all right, that's Paul speaking very boldly to the church there in the region of Galatia. Who hath bewitched you? Right? Who, who's tricked you? Who's convinced you of something that's not true, that ye should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? This only would I learn of you. Receive ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Right? The flesh wants policies. Okay? But the Spirit wants to be liberated and wants to function in light of biblical principles. So as a church family, how do we proceed? How do we move forward? We want to be unified and work together to follow Christ. How do we balance between freedom and teamwork? Huh? How do we all function as ministers? In light of the team. Okay, so that leads us to this next part, and that's this. The, the, the responsibility of ministry is really big, isn't it? The responsibility to do what we've been called to do, it's a big deal. And if you think about it too much, your mind will break. Because there's no way in the power of your flesh that you could ever do the things that God has asked of you. It requires the power of his spirit and grace. So first of all, let us be reminded that the task of the church is big. And when we think about the responsibilities associated with being a Christian, it ought to sober us up. God has called us to be stewards of the truth. 
The truth that he has revealed to the church in the church age, the mysteries, the doctrines that have been given to us. And this is our primary vocation. See, you thought your primary job was to be a teacher, you know, a programmer, a designer, right? You thought that that was your vocation, that that was what you were, that you were supposed to be. And a lot of times we talk to people, we identify ourselves in terms of what we do. I'm an art student or whatever it might be. But the truth is our primary vocation as followers of Jesus Christ is to be a light to the world. Matthew 5, 14 says, Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your faith which is in heaven. This is our primary vocation. It is the primary concern of our entire lives. Paul's letter to Corinth reminds them that we Christians are called to be ministers, servants, and ambassadors of Christ to the world. 1 Corinthians 4.1 says, Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. That's what you are. You're a steward of the mysteries of God. Those mysteries, those things that before time were darkened to men's eyes. Things that men couldn't understand, that they, they, they couldn't behold in knowledge had been granted to you as the church, and you are a steward of that. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. And this is no small task. Scripture is telling us that if we commit to being ministers of Christ, then we're required to be faithful to that work. So show of hands, okay? Who in here wants to be a light to the world? Okay? Some of you aren't sure yet. That's okay. No one's judging you. It's all good. I want to be a light to the world. Most of us in this room want to be a light to the world. And of, of course, of course that's true for anybody who's counted themselves a Christian. But we can't be a light to the world according to law or to rules, but according to freedom. And that leads us to point number two. Reaching the world, it requires more than our best intentions, you understand? It's not good enough to just be intentional about it. Okay, intentionality leads people astray all the time. Reaching the world requires more than our best intentions. It requires God's gifts for the ministry. It requires his gracious and loving gifts for our ministry to get done. God gives us three things to help us be free in ministry and aid in the work that he's called us to. These things are supposed to help us so that we can do exactly, exactly what he's made us to do. Okay, so let's talk about these things because they have everything to do with the principles. You understand? We haven't gotten to the principles yet. I haven't even defined what a principle is. Okay, we just talked about how bad policies are. Okay, we got to get there still. But before we get there, we have to understand that there's three things that God has given to us as the church that have everything to do with whether or not the policies are going to work right. All right, so the very first thing is that he's given us the gift of his spirit. He's given us his spirit. God gave us his spirit so that we can each individually be set free to serve him. That's what his spirit indwelling us does. It sets us free from sin. We know that for a fact, from the law of sin. But it also sets us free of the law of religion. Okay? Where we have to somehow do something in order to reflect the favor that we want from God. All right? The Spirit has set us free. His Holy Spirit gives us discernment. 
and reveals to us how to follow Christ according to his word. So 1 Corinthians 2.13 says, Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, we all know man's wisdom, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual, that is a person that is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, he that is spiritual judgeth all things. You've been set free to be a judge, to be a discerner of all things in this world. You, you don't need me to do that. You don't need a priest to go to, right? You don't need some sort of governor of the rules of the church to do that. No, he set you free to do that. You judge spiritual things. Spiritual judgeth all things that he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Galatians 5.18 says, But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law, no longer bound by religious rules and policies, but by the freedom of his Spirit. So the first thing that God gave the church is he gave us all the Spirit. It's what binds us together. The next thing is that he gave us the gift of his word. His word is intended to transform us and sanctify us for the work itself. 2 Timothy, uh, Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Listen, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. God's word refines us. It fixes us. It makes us right before him. And it prepares us so that we might, as frail and as weak and as wicked as we are, we might be set free to do the works that God's called us to do. His works are intended to guide us and to show us how to think and to conduct ourselves. Second Peter 1.19 says, We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arises in your hearts. So obviously... We're going, we as a church are going to take heed to the principles. And those principles, listen, this is important, should not be derived from pragmatism. Okay, so think about it for a second this way. The pastors in this church recognize that there are objectives to get done. And it would be very easy for us, like many other leaders in, in, in the business world as well, they would think pragmatically. They would say to themselves, this is the objective And so let us come up with the policies and the ways in which to get that thing done. It's very utilitarian thinking, you understand? How are we going to get it done? Well, we don't derive our principles from how we think things should get done. We as individuals, we as fleshly and weak people, we derive the principles that guide us from God's word, which is critical. That's the critical point. These aren't pillars. In Islam, you have pillars. Okay? Right? And these are, these are part of the construct, the rigid construct by which they live. These are principles. These are principles to set us free. The third thing is that God gives us the gift of his church. Lastly, we have the local church, which is intended to educate, equip, and edify the saints of God for the work of the ministry. All right, so we don't have time to uh, go through and talk about the universal church and the local church. Get discipled. You'll learn about all that stuff. 
But specifically, God has given us as New Testament believers the work of building and spreading local churches throughout the entire world. This local church happens to sit at 40th and Walnut. And God has given us one another that we might educate each other and equip each other in God's word. In Acts, we see the term one accord. Okay, going back to Acts, we see the term one accord. Eleven of the 13 times in the New Testament that it pops up. Eleven times. Now, some of those are positive uses and some of them are negative uses. But what we learn from that is that in every instance, whether good or bad, one accord refers to people who have unified their mind and their conduct in a singular way. And for believers, it should be just as Paul requested in Philippians 2.2. Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. That's what God wants for us. We as individuals that make up Midtown Baptist Temple and specifically the college and young adult ministry, we are to be like-minded, of one accord, unified together. 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. And what that's referencing is this idea that each of us make up body parts or members of the bride of Christ, which is a whole body, where Christ is the head. Each of us play a small role in that. And your part in that is super important. And though we are each distinct and autonomous, because God has made us that way, we are at the same time unified as an individual body. The church is imperfect and yet beautiful to Jesus, particularly when we're in harmony with Christ and one another. That's when we look the most beautiful to Jesus, is when we are harmonized and unified together, working together. And God has a plan for your life, and it includes submission to his spirit, his word, and his church. And within this perspective, we are to serve him according to biblical principles. So here we go. Here's our definition for principle. As we're set free... Uh, to do ministry, we function in principles, and, the, and principle, by that we mean, there's lots of definitions for this, so we want to clarify this. A principle is the fundamental and primary truths that guide one's faith, conduct, and ideology. Okay, that's what we mean by principle. And upon reading the New Testament, it becomes glaringly obvious that there are many principles that one can glean. Listen, let's, I want to make this point very quickly. There are thousands of principles for the believer in Scripture, you understand? And there are at least hundreds of principles that we as a church could, need, should abide by, right? Uh, principles regarding things like how to do, like how to handle church discipline. What there's like God's given us freedom in all these different aspects of, of ecclesiastic life, you understand? And there's all these principles, but there are some guiding principles that we have sifted out that are intended to provoke in us or prompt all of us individually to do ministry. And we as Midtown Baptist Temple are going to, if we're going to be used to reveal God's truth to this world, if we're going to be a light, then we must have principles that guide us both individually and collectively to serve the Lord. This keeps us centered, focused, unified, and accountable without being restricted by policies or relegated, here's the real one, relegated to busy work. Right? There's nothing more Laodicean than being cornered into busy work in the church. It's disgusting. Doing things just to do things. Horrifying. So here's principle number three before I invite, I mean, I'm sorry, point number three before I invite my, my man, Miles, up here. And that's this. Our ministry success, okay? Our ministry success as this local church 
and really in terms of your personal life, your ministry success, is contingent on our willingness to be guided by biblical principles. At the end of the day, it comes down to whether or not we're going to follow principally the words of God. All right? You might have principles that help govern your life that aren't on this list, and that's totally fine. But we as a church, as a local church, have designated nine principles by which we allow and set each other free to do the work of the ministry. And with that, our very first principle by which we hold to is the principle that we are going to be, no matter what, hell or high water, we are going to be a church of prayer. Amen? Amen. Miles, you're up. Tag. Okay. So, yeah, my name's Miles. Uh, We're going to dig right into it. I think Brandon hit on it perfectly. Uh, These uh, ministry principles are meant to to free us, right? They free us up to, to serve in ministry to... For, for God to use us as a local body. And the, the first point is that we are a house of prayer. We are a house of prayer, right? And, and this is beautiful. This is a big deal uh, because it means that we are completely dependent on God. We, we acknowledge that if God doesn't build the house, then this is all just vain labor. And that's an important place to be. That's a humble place to be. And that's a place where we position ourselves to be blessed by the Lord, and so this ministry principle, it's derived from passage in Matthew 21. And as we read this passage, there's an Old Testament context to this, right? Where, where Jesus is entering into the temple of God and saying that this temple is supposed to be a house of prayer. And yet, principally, as believers, we acknowledge that we are the temple of God, right? That the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And yet, we get to First Peter, and we also see that we are these lively stones that make up this spiritual habitation, right? And so whenever we get to gather together collectively as a body, we are to be characterized by the fact that we are a house of prayer. And so in Matthew 21, verses 10 through 13, it says, When he, that being Jesus, was coming to Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? Right? Who is this dude? And the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and said unto them, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And guys, this passage right here, it is incredible, right? Just to set it up, Jesus has just entered into Jerusalem. Like if we rewind a couple of verses, we see that Jesus, he's entering into the city, that that everybody is worshiping him, right? They're throwing down their garments, they're, they're laying down their branches, they're singing Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna in the highest. They're acknowledging Jesus Christ as their king, as their Messiah, right? as the one that's come to free them, to save them. And as he's entering into Jerusalem, Jesus Christ ascends into the temple. And guys, this would be a climactic scene within the arc of the story of Matthew. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, right? Fully God and fully man, and he's entering into the temple of God. And when he comes in, he's disgusted. He's devastated. This place that's supposed to be his temple Man, it's just completely adulterated. The temple was a structure that God had set up for worship. 
and had clearly just been completely adulterated. Its purpose was just set to the side, and it was substituted for something that he had poured. Filthy lucre and personal gain. Filthy lucre and personal gain. And unfortunately, too often, this is representative of our prayer lives, isn't it? Instead of coming to, to worship God, instead of coming to align our hearts and our will with his, it's to take, take, take. And of all the things that we could call the temple of God, we see that God himself calls it his house of prayer. And so Jesus says that my, my house shall be called a house of prayer, as it is written. And we find that first mention in Isaiah 56. In Isaiah 56, in verse 3 through 7, it really kind of outlines that. It says, Neither let the son of the stranger that hath joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord hath utterly separated me from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. Right? And so it's talking about these, uh, these strangers in Israel and this eunuch. By verse 5, it says, Even unto them and to those people will I give in mine house and within my walls a place and a name better than of sons and of daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And by verse 7, we see the same group of people, even them, will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar, for mine house shall be called an house of prayer for all people, for all people. You see, in the Old Testament, the temple, this house is where Israel would assemble to worship the Lord. And in this passage, God is making it clear that even those who would have been culturally and spiritually outcast within the nation of Israel, these strangers in the land, that's speaking to these ethnically non-Jewish people, and these eunuchs, that's speaking to these ceremoniously unclean people, even them, that there is a home for them in God's house, right? And we go to passages like Deuteronomy 23, and we see the level to, to which they'd be separated physically from the people. They weren't even welcome amongst the con congregation. And yet God is making it very clear that there's home for them in his house. This was a place for all people, for all nations, and for what purpose other than these prayers, these, these incense of the saints, right? The, the, the sacrifices to the one true God, because that truly is a sweet-smelling savor. And when I read passages like this and uh, you know, in, in, in 56, I can't help but think of Acts 8. And so are you familiar with Acts 8? It's the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. Do you guys remember that? In this passage, we've got this Ethiopian eunuch, and he's leaving Jerusalem, right? And so clearly he's reading the scriptures. He's pursuing the one true God of Israel, right? And as he's leaving, he's reading the scriptures, and Philip, he joins himself to his chariot, and he asks, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, no, how could I unless someone explained it to me? And so Philip joins himself to the chariot, and he's reading, he's studying in Isaiah 53. And this is a beautiful passage, right? This is a passage about the suffering lamb that took away the sins of the world. And so beautifully, Philip just lays out the gospel, and he preaches the gospel message of Jesus Christ and how Jesus is that perfect lamb that died for our sins. And the Ethiopian eunuch, he, he receives that, and he immediately obeys in baptism, and then Philip, he's taken off by the Spirit and ends up in like Caesarea or something. Like, it's crazy, right? But, but think, this Ethiopian eunuch, he gets back in his chariot, and he gets back into the scriptures. And the very next passage he'd be reading is this, 
Isaiah 56. And he sees that even him, this outcast in the land of Israel, this Ethiopian, and this eunuch who has no presence in the congregation of Israel, he's got a home in God's house. Wow. How awesome is that? How reassuring is that? It's beautiful, right? So this is a house for all people. And our key point number one is that all are invited to participate in prayer. All are invited to participate in prayer. And that's a big deal, y'all. The, the veil's torn, right? We, as sons and daughters of God, we're this royal priesthood of believers that have direct access to the Lord. And so there's an invitation, an expectation for all of God's people to participate in the worship of prayer. And that's an interesting word. You don't often think of prayer as worship, do you? And if you don't, you should take Eric's class this semester in FBI. But as we study the Old Testament, prayer is a central element to the structure of temple worship that God put in place. And we see time after time God bending his ear to fulfill the request of those who ask. I think about in 1 Samuel, we see Hannah go to the house of God and make these desperate pleas and petitions for a child. She wanted to be fruitful, and she knew that this was something that was beyond her control. And so she sought the Lord, and he heard her. He heard her plea. And again, this was the design. The temple was a place for all people to seek the Lord. And this is why we make corporate prayer ministry such a priority in our church. Right? This is why we make Tuesdays a big deal. If you've been coming for, for any amount of time, someone's come up to you and told you that, man, our Tuesday night prayer ministries, that's the most important service that we hold. Tuesday night, not, not the, this thing on Sunday morning. Tuesday night when we gather together as a congregation and plead and make petitions to the Lord, that's the most important service that we hold because we're humble and we're desperate for God to move and we acknowledge if he doesn't, then no work will get done here, Right? But it's not just on Tuesday nights. It is a guiding principle that leads everything that we do in ministry. You notice that before we started the message today, we entered into a season of prayer. Whenever you guys gather for Bible study, what's the first thing you do? You pray, don't you? Whenever we break bread together, the first thing we do is we pray, right? We want to acknowledge God in everything that we're doing and everything that we're doing. And so let's consider the purpose and the importance of corporate prayer. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, it says, If my people, and so acknowledge that this is speaking to a collective, right? Which are called by my name shall humble themselves and do what? And pray and seek my face and turn from there. That's a plural, right? This is speaking to the collective. From their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their, the collective, sin and will heal their land. Are you seeing that? This corporate acknowledgement of our need uh, to God is so vital for us fulfilling the mission that God has given us, right? We, we collectively need to acknowledge God and that, that, that we need him. It's so, so crucial to the mission that God has given us. The greatest thing about prayer is the fact that God answers prayer. Hello, somebody, right? He answers prayer, and thus he moves us along in his power and his provision, and I want to make sure you caught that. It's not our power. It's not our will. It's not our might. It's not our intellect. It's God blessing us. It's his power. It's his provision. You see, praying to God is not just communing with him, but it's showing him how desperately we need him in every aspect of our ministry life. In every aspect. And so our key point number two is that we're dependent on God. We are dependent on God. 
We prioritize corporate prayer because we're dependent on God and everything that we've done and all that we're doing and all that we will do. Everything we've done, all that we're doing, and everything that we will do, we must have God's hand of blessing upon us. Or as the psalmist says, we labor in vain. In Psalm 127, verse 1, he says, Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. They labor in vain that build it. And the early disciples, they got this, right? As soon as Jesus, he ascends into the clouds in glory, they gather together. And like Brandon said, this is one of the dimensions of one accord. And, and what do they do? They pray with one accord. They pray desperately with one accord. They know that, man, Emmanuel, God with us, he, he, he's not here anymore. What are we going to do except God move? And so they got desperate, and they entered into the upper room, and they start seeking the Lord. And guess what? He sent a comforter, right? They, they prayed until the Holy Spirit came, and thus the power of the Spirit. Acts 1 and 2, it's awesome. God is getting work done, right? And he's using his people. But the disciples, they got it because they learned how to pray. We turn to passages like Luke 11. We see Jesus sitting with his disciples. He's not teaching them how to preach. He's teaching them how to pray, isn't he? In Luke 11, verse 2, it says, When ye pray, say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so on earth. When we pray, we must look to find ourselves on God's side, right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It's, it's not about me. It's not about my agenda. Whenever we pray, whenever we seek the Lord, 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 what would you have us to do? How would you lead us? What should we be asking you for? Right? We have to find ourselves on God's side, not hoping that God would be on our side. Otherwise, our, our prayers are just these, these Christmas lists, right? And we approach God as Santa Claus and say, I want, and I, I want this, and I want, I want this as well. That, that's not how we should seek him. It's not about... You know, Sam, my way, like that, that's not what this is, right? Unfortunately, the majority of prayers in Christendom, that's how they look, though. Lord, would you give me, give me, give me, give me this, give me that. Prayer is just this time where we meet with God and, and ask him to do stuff for us, like this, this genie in a lamp. That's not my God, right? That's a self-focused mentality. And while it sounds good, this idea that, that God just wants me to be happy, he wants me to, to, to have everything that would make me happy. Well, that's not the goal of our lives. As I read this book and I see what God wants for me, he wants me to look like his son, Jesus Christ, right? He wants me in my life to fall out to his glory, that he would be worshiped. Think about Romans 12, verses 1 through 2, how he beseeches us, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Right? It's not about this self-focused, self-pleasing mentality, this culture of our day where it's about us being happy. In light of all this, we must continue to see prayer as a time for us to be with God, to commune with him, to commune with God according to his will, not our own. And so key point number three is that as we pray, we must align our hearts with that of the Father. The most powerful prayers are accomplished as we align our hearts with 
the Father and not the other way around. When we come together, we pray according to his will, which is in submission to his word, not seeking God to do our will. You see, in Matthew 21, when Jesus entered into the temple, he was disappointed because he saw a bunch of people pursuing personal gain rather than spiritual gain. Personal gain rather than spiritual gain. He was determined that his house should be characterized by prayer of all people. And so in closing, the question on the floor today is, as living stones in this spiritual house, will we allow this ministry to be characterized by being a house of prayer? Are we desperate for the Lord to move in our midst? And so with that, I'm going to just kind of close us out and pass the mic back to, to, to Brandon. Uh, but Lord, man, I'm desperate for, for us to be desperate for the Lord. Right? Unless he moves, this is all vain labor. All right? So, you know, this is critical for us to get. And, and I love that this is the, first, the very first principle. Right? This isn't the last principle. Seeking the face of God is the very first principle where we begin. And doing that in prayer, I think most Christians recognize that this is an area of weakness. Uh, we're so busy. I mean, you have to stop. You have to hit pause on everything to spend time with the God that is invisible to our eyes but real in our hearts and mind. And you've got, you've, got to, you've got to put a stop to other things in your life. You have to slow down in order to do it. And so it may seem like a redundancy to say that we need to pray that God would make us prayerful. But I think that that's what we need. I think that we need to ask the Lord that he would, in our hearts, change something in terms of our conviction. Because again, our tendency is always going to be to do something. In ministry, we're going to do something for God. Okay, So we set about doing that. And then we spend hours and hours working on the project that God has given us in ministry. And we could very, very easily... Uh, you know, never ask that God would, would bless this according to his will and his way. That God would show us the right way to do it. That God would lead us and guide us and keep us from blundering our way through. And so we might neglect prayer or, or you know, just as bad, just throw one up, throw another one up, you know. I still, I still, see, I still see athletes doing this. Before every basketball game, you know? They shoot a free throw. They're like, oh, yeah. Thanks, God. And that's, how we, that's practically how, this is how we function in prayer. We're Baptists, so we actually bow our heads and close our eyes when we pray. But man, at the end of the day, I mean, in terms of your heart posture, some of you are just like, bless this thing I'm doing. And that's wicked. It's not right. God deserves our time and our attention, our mind, our heart, our focus. And prayer. He wants us to talk to him. And so as we close, I'm, I'm going to pray. I'm going to give us a season. We have a, we have a few minutes before the worship needs to start. We'll start the worship in a few minutes. But I would really love it is if we as a ministry humbled ourselves for a moment and got in groups of two or three and just prayed together that God would transform this ministry of young people into a ministry or a house of prayer and then God would teach us how to pray because we lose sight of how to pray all the time. 
So let's do that. Let's break out, and then, and then the worship will start, and then we can come back together. Now, I also want to say this. There are people in this room today. I, you know, I recognize there's a lot of visitors here. There's faces I haven't seen before. If there's something that you need, if you have a spiritual need, during the worship, there will also be a group of people that come up here, and they're just standing. They're just hanging out. They're not doing that uh, to look tough. Uh, you know, Eric looks tough when he's standing up here like, But they're, they're standing up here because they want to help you. And if you have something that you need to talk about, uh, come meet with one of the counselors during the worship set. And they'll meet with you. They'll go to a quiet place and they'll talk through whatever it is you're struggling with. Maybe you don't know Jesus Christ. right? Maybe you, you, you don't know what it means to actually have forgiveness and to be set free. And so that would be something worth coming and talking to someone about. But let's... Let, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to... Pray real quick, and then let's just spend a season of prayer together. And then when the worship starts, that'll be your cue to stand up and praise. Okay? Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you. Thank you for Miles and, and uh, his willingness to study and to just give us a taste of what your word says about prayer. Um, it's important for us to be reminded that we are to be a house of prayer. And, uh, Lord, I want to be a person of prayer. And so as I pray with my brothers and sisters, Lord, I pray. I pray that you would also transform my personal life into a life of prayer. And that in my quiet time, I would, I would be seeking to, to pray back your scriptures to you. That I would take your, the will of your word and the promises of your word, and I just simply present them to you in the frailty of my, and, and the weakness of my mouth. And that, Lord, you would do something with that because it pleases you to do that. It's by my humility before you that you desire to work on my behalf. And so, Lord, I pray that you would teach all of us in our personal lives to come before you in prayer and to pray back the scriptures from which we're learning from. Lord, we need you. We cannot do the work of reaching. The, we cannot be lights to this world. We will, we will and, and, you know, in our flesh, in our very best, we will only just glow dimly. But, Lord, if we pray, you will illuminate us and you will make the truth of who you are bright to the whole world for everyone to see. And so, Lord, that is what we ask, is that we would be exactly what you desire for us to be. And that's good stewards. So help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.